Hey, this is Liv Warfield, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. You're always dancing down the street with your suede blue eyes, and every new boy that you meet, he doesn't know the real surprise diggers. Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. Oh, doing silly things at the beginning. You know, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, I hope it's okay. I hope you guys get a little chuckle out of it. You know I'm not serious, right? Well, not for that. I'm serious about the rest, though. So, um, hey, if you haven't heard, I'll remind you one more time. Um, episode 18, 1969, part one is now out and available. Uh, a year so big in rock and roll that it will take us two full episodes to do it justice. Um, and uh, while episode uh, 18 uh, 1969 part one is out episode 19 1969 part two is seriously being worked on uh, we are really going to try our best to get this one out sooner than the usual three to six months that uh, that it takes and it's been more closer to six months than three months these days so we're we're uh, we are internally trying to um, uh, mix some things up uh, and uh, move the process along here. So please uh, keep our feet to the fire. Uh, plug us along. Uh, send us nasty notes, uh, friendly nasty notes, that is, saying, hey, get to it. What are you going to do? When are we going to get this? You know, that sort of thing. So, um, I, I, again, uh, as I told you guys last week, we do have it all mapped out because, of course, it was it was originally supposed to be one uh, episode and it got so uh, unwieldy uh, and uh, large that w we just had to split it in two. And chronologically, we kind of did it, and it just kind of worked out this way too. Uh, the first half of the year was primarily in the UK. The second half of the year will be primarily in uh, America. So uh, we are deep in the writing phase, which is always the longest and hardest um, to to accomplish. Uh, in the end, uh, we, what you will get is at least three hours of uh, the events uh, in rock and roll and the world at large from 1969. Uh, and that uh, gets us pretty much to the end of the 1960s. There'll be one more episode after that. Uh, I'm giving you guys a little secret here uh, that will kind of close it out, make a bridge to the upcoming decade of the 1970s, which we're really excited to get into. I bet you guys are all as well. So keep an eye. Uh, hold on to your hats uh, while listening to episode 18, knowing it's only half the tale. The second half of the year is coming. All right. Uh, one last thing, and then we'll get right into it. Let's uh, please, please, please tell a friend. Take a look at uh, the Pantheon Podcast Network, where you can find uh, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, this show, Deeper Digs in Rock, and a bunch of other great music 
related shows, only music shows on Pantheon podcasts. So you'll uh, you'll appreciate that. Lots of goodness to be had if you just do a little, uh, you know, uh, sniffing around and uh, try uh, one or two out. Uh, give it a little bit of a, of a go and see how you like it, uh, you know, and then share. Uh, let us know that, uh, you know, you're fans of this one or that one. Uh, we're going to be adding some new podcasts, too, coming up in the next few weeks. So there'll be some new things that'll be fun to talk about uh, as well. And I will let you know uh, at the beginning. All right. So that's it. Let's get to this week's guest. Janis Joplin had a very short career and short life, but she still fascinates us as a true rock and roll original. Uh, of course, there is without doubt that powerhouse of vocal that sounds like it's about to fall apart, even as it soars above any of the music behind it. Um, certainly her little girl blue life story is a huge part of her interest as well. It is uh, mostly a sad uh, account of a hugely talented and empathetic person who would never really find much happiness beyond the lighted stage. Uh, how can you not be endeared uh, towards her and her, her story? Also, given the fact that she really was just getting started when she died of an accidental overdose, um, though not surprising in hindsight, uh, it just makes the whole story a tragedy of epic scale. Uh, the promise of uh, the life unlived. Um, I'll prove the case by using only um, sample songs from her last uh, album released uh, posthumously, Pearl. Uh, the fact remains, she was special and uh, continues to be a huge part of the rock and roll story. Not exactly the first rock and roll female star, um, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner, or Big Mama Thornton and Sister Rosetta Tharp come to mind uh, as preceding her. And I might suggest Janice has a, a lot uh, to owe to Wanda Jackson. But still, she became an overnight sensation. Um, and I mean that quote unquote. Uh, after the Monterey Pop, uh, festival and up until her death was almost always on a rise in popularity. And I think the album Pearl was just going to make her even bigger, even uh, if she had survived. Um, it didn't matter um, that it was a posthumous album is my point. I'm sure all of us would have liked to have seen and hear what would have happened if she had survived uh, October 4th, 1970. But um, that's just speculation, uh, looking at a crystal ball, if you will, and, and that doesn't do anybody much good. But we like to think, we like to consider uh, what uh, what could have happened. I think that's a big part of her fascination as well. 
Many, many books have been written about Janis Joplin, some uh, better than others, most focus on the five-year arc of her rise and fall, and therefore are almost all incomplete. She did have a life before uh, the San Francisco era, and she was much more than her music and her addictions. Well, now comes one of the most highly regarded chroniclers of American music history, and based on unprecedented access to Janis Joplin's family, friends, bandmates, archives, diaries, and even the long-lost interviews, uh, Holly George Warren, uh, who is our guest today, uh, where we will dig into her new book, Janis, Her Life and Music, um, kind of has a new spin on uh, on things. Um and while uh, I will have my time in just a minute to dive into the uh, the new biography on this legend, uh, let me just have Roseanne Cash chime in on what she thought of the book. Uh, quote, uh, I've been waiting for the right person to write the definitive biography of Janis Joplin. All fans should be grateful it's finally here. Janice lives and breathes freedom and soul, and Holly George Warren captures that spirit perfectly, end quote. So, do you want to disagree with uh, Johnny Cash's daughter? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Holly George Warren is a two-time Grammy nominee and the award-winning author of 16 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Road to Woodstock with Michael Lang, and the biographies uh, A Man Called Destruction, The Life and Music of Alex Chilton, and Public Cowboy Number 1, The Life and Times of Gene Autry. Uh, she's written for a variety of publications, including Rolling Stone, The New York Times, The Village Voice, and Entertainment Weekly. Uh, in addition, uh, she has served as an archivist, curator for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation and the Grammy Museum. She is the director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum Oral History Program and serves on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's nominating committee. <laughs> she teaches art journalism at the State University there in New Paltz, New York. Oh, wow. She has got a CV. We'll talk about all of that and more, dive deep into her new book, uh, Janice, uh, Her Life in Music. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Holly George Warren. Busted flat in Ben Rouge, waiting for a train. And I was feeling near as faded as my jeans Bobby thumbed a diesel down Just before it rained And rode us all the way into New Orleans I pulled my harpoon Out of my dirty red bandana I was playing soft while Bobby sang the blues <laughs> When she whopper slapping time Holly George Warren, welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock. How are you doing today? I'm doing great because I love Deeper Digs <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. Uh, well, we love having you here. We're going to dive deep into your new book, Janice, uh, Her Life and Music. Um, but I got to ask to start with, so what is the uh, Holly George Warren superhero origin story? 
of myself or of Janice? Of you. Oh, me. Your superhero story. Well, I became a digging deep obsessive rock and roll fan in third grade in third wow all back the, third in the grade. 60s a long time ago during the golden age of am radio That's right when i discovered in my teeny town in north carolina that late at night when i was lying in bed i could tune in my little pastel clock radio to wabc in new york or wl us in Chicago and get all these amazing tunes and I literally became obsessed because in my town you know the radio station which mostly played country and gospel signed off North Carolina at night oh yeah. really yeah. oh it oh, signed oh, off yeah. at night like, it was, like civilized talk, people we're talking small town right, right and suddenly I heard all this and you know again that was back in the day when you could hear a Johnny Cash song then a Supreme song then a Beatles song then a Bobby Darren song you know I mean it was just such a mix of music and yeah, I got the way AM so radio was it. at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah, you would get the Rolling Stones one minute, and then you'd get Nat King Cole the next minute, or exactly. something. Exactly. Like right? Yeah, right. and you know, I mean, there was a few other places. Of course, I think I discovered American Bandstand around that time as well. Uh -huh. But I started using all my babysitting money Clark, to right? buy records. Mm -hmm. You know, my mm -hmm. parents got me. Uh, you know, record player. And then, so, you know, I bought a few albums, but mainly due to finances, I think I was getting paid 50 cents an hour as a babysitter. So I was buying lots and lots of 45s. So right. that really set me on my path uh -huh. and led me to where I am today. Okay. Okay. Now, before we get into your excellent book on Janis Joplin, let's find out uh, a little bit about your writing career, because this is not your first rock and roll rodeo, right? No, I've been doing rock and roll books for a long time. In fact, when I did move to New York City to seek my fame and fortune <laughs> as a music writer, I uh -huh. hope. This was back in the punk era of cool fanzines you could write for and things like that. Yeah. One of my first jobs, and again, for a rock and roll trivia history geek, this was a dream come true. I got a job as a fact checker at the Rolling Stone offices. It was called Rolling Stone Press. And they were doing the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll a big reference book on that very subject we know and love. Wow. And my gig. The first one, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and so my job was to read what these, you know, famous uh, music writers from Rolling Stone, who I'd read as a kid. Right. You know. Like Dave, David Fricke and. Uh, no, this was pre-David pre Frick. Oh, so like yeah, Hunter this was Thompson. Like, and... No, he didn't really write about Yeah, he, he wrote This about was culture. like, Dave, I would say Dave Marsh is oh, Dave Marsh. a major okay. one uh, who uh, wrote uh, pieces for this. Mm -hmm. So I would read his essay or his little encyclopedia entry on question mark and the Mysterians, for example. And then I would get to call up question mark and double check that Dave got his facts straight about him. Did he really come from another planet? <laughs> Did <laughs> stuff like that. And it was incredible. You know, it was yeah. such a cool gig. We I sat in this kind of loft type room with a bunch of other rock and roll geeks and we listened to records all day, called people on the phone. And back in those days, this is around 1982, you know, there weren't very many sources to check. I mean, we could check back issues of Rolling Stone and Cream and... Yeah, it's not like the internet today where everything's yes. at your fingers, right? Exactly. You, you actually had to go and uh, put and, some shoe leather uh, right. to work and try uh, to go find to, the people. Yeah, call people, talk to people, and then libraries, I'm sure, and back pages, like you said, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. So, so that was kind of um, my entree into publishing, and then I ended up eventually 
which was kind of a cool thing. Ten years later, I came back to Rolling Stone. They hired me to be the editor with um, David Frick's colleague, a guy named Anthony DeCurtis. Oh, Anthony DeCurtis, yeah. Yes, and then another guy who sadly we just lost, Jim Hinkey, who just passed away. Mm. um, I worked with them on the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll and the Rolling Stone Album Guide. You know, I'd moved up the food chain. Now I was an editor with them. So I was getting to contact writers like uh, Robert Palmer, the great blues scholar and writer, Grill Marcus mm-hmm. from the Bay Area, yeah. of course, Robert Criscow, you know, yeah. many great, yeah. great All writers. Yeah, yeah. And talk to them about, you know, updating some essays they had written previously and then assigning new chapters. And Anthony, very cool uh, thing, I thought, actually ended up assigning me to write a chapter for that book on women in rock and roll and some of the new artists, as well as looking back at Patti Smith and some of the groundbreaking artists from the 70s. So that was very cool. Very awesome. Yeah. And then that went well. That was a freelance gig. And then Jan Winter, who owned Rolling Stone, was thrilled with the books and decided to start up a book division again. It had gone defunct after my early foray there in the 80s so he hired me to be the director of rolling stone press so for the next say eight nine years i did about 40 books while i was at rolling stone press with a variety of publishers Uh, we did uh, beautiful coffee table books on kurt cobain um, jerry garcia sadly Mm -hmm. we used to call those our tombstone books i think i own both of them yeah beautifully Mm -hmm. designed books uh, and again it would be an anthology of um, material that had been in the magazine but then we would assign new pieces so for example, I got Ken Kesey to write a piece for, for Jerry, Jerry Garcia, yeah. you know, mm. things like that. So it was very cool. Oh, that's nice. All right. So then you start doing your own books. Yes, I started doing my own books. My first ever book was actually, I had two things happen to me at once. Um, this was around 1990 before I went to work at Rolling Stone, even before I did that freelance gig editing those books. Uh, I got a deal to do a book with Jenny Boyd. She uh, was previously married to Mick Fleetwood and her sister Patty oh, was yes. married to George Harrison and Eric Clapton. So mm-hmm. she had a, she had a little bit of uh contacts in the rock world and she had gone back to school after she and Mick split up and gotten her PhD in psychology and her dissertation was on the creative process in musicians and she was really into Carl Jung and Abraham Maslow and you know just this kind of interesting study the creative process so she went to expand it into a book and I had an agent and she connected us so I became her co-author so uh, we ended up writing this book called musicians in tune 75 musicians discuss the creative process fortunately um, that was just an amazing experience working with her together collaborating on the writing um, doing the interviews, etc. And that book is actually was recently republished in England. So now it's got a different title. It's called It's Not Only Rock and Roll. <laughs> so if you can't find the 1991 book, that, that one just came out a couple of years ago and we updated. And it's across the genre. We have everyone from John Lee Hooker to, um, let's see, gosh, Roseanne Cash to, of course, Joni Mitchell, Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, all the members of Fleet with Max and very big names talking about, you know, what it was like to be creative as kids, how do they got into rock and roll, um, the collective unconscious, the peak experience as a performer and a songwriter, you know, these kind of heady subjects, but it's a cool book, I have to say. 
And then at the same time I was doing that, I was hired by Ben Fong Torres. Oh, yep. Also Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. Yes, and featured in Almost Famous, of yeah. course, the film, and now a musical, I think, just... Open uh, yeah, being worked on down in San Diego yeah. as we speak. Uh -huh. So Ben had a book deal to write a biography of Graham Parsons, previously of the Birds and the Flying yeah. Burrito Brothers, who tragically died in 73. And I was a huge Graham Parsons fan. So he hired me as his assistant. And basically through that job, I kind of learned how to write biographies because we went traveling all over the South, interviewing people. And, you know, he invited me to, you know, participate in interviews in Los Angeles and I really learned about the art of not only writing a biography, which I was a huge fan of biographies, and I'd been reading them, again, since I was a kid, uh -huh. but now... So along with the 45s, you also were a voracious reader of rock and roll lore. Yeah, there weren't really that many to read until, I think, like around the 70s. The yeah. first one I remember reading was Anthony Scaduto's biography of Bob Dylan going way back yeah. and then gradually they started to be more available people were getting deals i mean you know they had this little teen quickie books and stuff so of course i read some of those but as far as the real books, the serious books, yeah right, exactly. right that we get now like your book right well, thank you yeah yeah so anyway so those two projects kind of happened at the same time and that's what led the way i think between that and then doing all the books at rolling stone i kind of learned on the job Okay. All right. All right. And uh, you now have 16 books published uh, under your name, right? Yeah, about 16 books. And, you know, that doesn't even include all these other kind of team projects that I did. I, I did a book with Martin Scorsese when he did a whole documentary series on the blues. I don't know if you remember that from yep. the early aughts. Yep. And um, so I did the tie-in book with that. I got to work with Peter Garownik on that. And um, so that was really cool. I did a book with Farm Aid for their... Uh, I think that was their 20th anniversary. I did a book with Bonnaroo for their 10th anniversary. So I also did these kind of books where I kind of put together teams of people to, you know, kind of like putting together podcasts or something to do a book. So I did those as well as doing my own books that I wrote. Yeah. And you also teach, right? Yeah, I teach at State University of New York in New Paltz, and um, I mostly teach... <laughs> New Paltz. <laughs> yes. Arts writing classes, uh -huh. mostly, uh -huh. yeah. All right, all yeah. right. Yeah, so a very nice uh, breakdown of your CV. You are completely and utterly qualified. Uh, we have established that now, folks. A legend in my own mind. <laughs> well, I, I think it's more than just yourself here. So, oh, so thank okay. you. So much has been written and said about Janis Joplin. So many books, several documentaries, uh, Broadway, uh, television. I think there's even been biopic attempts. Um, so why a new book on her life? You know, you would think, yeah, that everything had been said already, but I discovered from just my own work that I didn't know Janice's origin story, really. Like, how did she become a musician? How did she, this white girl in segregated Port Arthur, Texas yeah. in the 50s, find these really difficult to find 78 recordings of Lead Belly and Bessie Smith, artists that turned her into a blues fanatic um, and set her on her path. 
And there was a little bit of information about that out there, but not a lot. So that was one of my motivations to kind of understand her musical journey. You know, Janice had such a colorful life. She created this incredible persona that we, you know, me included, believe to be, oh, that's Janice 100%. But I started getting this idea that there was a whole other side to her that we didn't know about. Hmm. Um, back in the early teens, I was asked to write liner notes for a two CD set called The Pearl Sessions uh, by Sony Music. And what they did was they pulled out of the vaults from Columbia, her label, all these tapes of her in the studio with the producer Paul Rothschild. Yeah, working with the Doors yes. and then worked with her. And yep. famously quite the taskmaster when mm -hmm. it comes to working in the studio. I had just done a project and interviewed a lot of the guys in the Doors and including the engineer Bruce Botnick, etc. Yep. Mm -hmm. And learned like, you know, he would make Jim Morrison redo a vocal over and over and over again and... He was just very bossy, you know, famously Joni Mitchell did yeah. a session and couldn't deal with him because he was trying to tell her what to do. She went and ended up producing herself. Yeah, <laughs> but check it out. I think that's definitely what Janice would have done because here's the thing. It turns out Janice was calling the shots on these tapes I was listening to. She was coming up with alternate, you know, ideas for um, arrangements than what they had started thinking about. She was coming up with guitar parts. She was... Uh, calling the shots like, oh, wait, no, I, I want to redo this vocal. Wait, I want to change my vocal this way. She was really working in the studio as a peer with Rothschild. And come to find out, thank goodness for me, I got to collaborate as far as with the family, let me have access to these letters that she wrote home from San Francisco beginning in 66. On her second trip to San Francisco. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, actually her third, believe it or not, Oh. which I found out she first hitchhiked to San Francisco when she was 18 years old. Check that out. And uh, yeah, in 1961. But um, when she was there in 66, when she joined Big Brother, she would report home all these like studio geek, you know, details about working in the studio, what it was like to double track her vocals, explaining the process, what it was like, what the mixing process was like on Cheap Thrills. You know, she was really into that whole technical aspect of recording. And her persona, of course, was the complete opposite. She just made it look like she just was channeling this music from deep, you know, this pain. Yeah, she just walked in yeah. like a diva, did her thing, Yeah, left to go get her a bottle of Jack. Yeah, and or Southern Comfort or tequila. <laughs> but she was such an amazing singer. I mean, she did almost make it seem effortless. But I discovered that there was this other side to her that she didn't want the public to know. She was a very, very hardworking musician, a student of music to begin with, who learned her phrasing, learned how to use her voice in all kinds of different ways from just her natural, you know, born soprano that she sang in the church choir as a little kid or in the glee club in high school, you know, that she taught herself how to do different things with her voice and then as a musician as well and you know she started writing songs uh, back in like say 1962 you know i think if she had lived if she had not tragically died of an accidental heroin overdose while making pearl she would have gone on to be a producer she would have continued to explore different musical genres and if you do a deep dive into her catalog and go back to some things that now, thanks to the interwebs, you can hear some stuff of her doing everything from 
old-timey kind of hillbilly country music to Bessie. I mean, there's one song she wrote called Mary Jane that she recorded with a Dixieland jazz band in San Francisco the second time she was there in around 1964, wow. where... It sounds like a Bessie Smith song from back in the 20s. Uh -huh, it's this uh -huh. amazing song that Janice wrote. And I was fascinated by the secret life of Janice as a studious, hardworking musician. Uh, more than just the persona that yes. is uh, cataloged and, and trotted out uh, every so often. Exactly. Uh, okay, okay. Good reason to write a, a new book. Yeah. So, so now I interview a, a lot of rock and rollers. And honestly, while we do our best around here to get diverse voices, much of the rock and roll story is mostly men, uh, certainly at the beginning and the formative years, though women do become more and more of the overall story as we get closer to the present. Uh, and inevitably, when I ask that eureka moment, uh, these mostly guys, and they almost all point to either Elvis Presley or the Beatles as the lightning strike. And your book points to Janice as an inspirational moment in the lives of future women rockers. Um, why do you think that is? Also, I would say male rockers, too. I don't think we would have seen Robert Plant's vocal style or his stage presence Great without point. the influence of Janis Joplin. Yeah, and he and, is channeling some of her, isn't he? Yeah, and he's he said that himself. And actually, there is a, uh, a woman who's a scholar and a, a musicological professor who's actually done a study comparing note to note some of uh, a Janis track with a Led Zeppelin track. So you can read about that in my book. I mentioned that a little bit in there. But um, anyway, yeah, I think for women, there had never been an artist like like Janice, who on stage was able to touch audiences the way Janice did, or probably men either, as if when you think about it, as far as digging down so deep in herself and being able to touch these emotions, feelings, things that people try to keep tamped down, but we all kind of are keeping at bay. She was just letting them out through that incredible voice of hers and also through her body. She was a very oh, yeah. sensual it, performer. Yeah, unabandoned on stage. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I've talked to people that saw her in 66 and they describe it to me as if it was a couple of weeks ago. It made such an impact on them. And that's everyone from, say, rock photographer Bob Gruen to many, many women. I just, the great cinematographer Haskell Wexler, I just met his widow um, a couple of weeks ago at the Woodstock Film Festival. And she started telling me about seeing Janice with Big Brother and the Holding Company at San Francisco State in 1966. And she described it as completely changing her life. Same thing. She got to see them at Monterey Pop in 67, which was when Yeah, when she Janice, becomes an international superstar. Yeah, that's overnight. when she really got national attention mm -hmm. was her performance with Big Brother. And she said that the things that Janice was singing and the way she was expressing herself was able to help her reach into her own self and, and feel these emotions and things like that. So I think a lot of women in the audience felt that Janice was singing not only to them, but for them. She was voicing feelings that they had that they couldn't express themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we're going to dive into her uh, superhero origin story here. Uh, and uh, as many who know the Janice story are aware, uh, you know, her high school years were not kind to her. Um, she was bullied. Um, famously, she returns for her 
Port Arthur High School 10-year reunion in 1970, and I think that was just a few weeks before her untimely death. Yeah, it was about six weeks or eight weeks before, yeah. And if any have seen the video of her attending can see, you know, there's a lot going on under the surface. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's, oh, it's so I mean, sad to yeah, watch. Her <laughs> uncomfortability, uh, even as a returning hero, is... I, I think bittersweet at best. And I can imagine the conflicted feelings she must have had. But <laughs> I didn't know that future NFL legend Jimmy Johnson was one of her tormentors. Yes. That's correct. Um, and I just have to preface it by saying that I think the reason what happened to her, basically when she was in 11th and 12th grade, the last you know couple of years or so of high school, mm. I don't think it would have been so horribly painful if her earlier life in Port Arthur, her earlier school years weren't quite pleasant, quite happy. I mean, she was um, into the whole traditional kind of 50s school thing, really, up yeah. until she was in her, um, you know, like around 14, 15, 16. And also keep in mind, Janice was much younger than most of her classmates. She started school at a very young age, and then she was so smart, she ended up skipping a grade. So she was emotionally quite a bit younger and smaller physically than a lot of the kids in her class. But what happened was, in 1957, Janice discovered On the Road, which had just been published by Jack, Jack Kerouac. Kerouac right. And she also met some guys through the little theater group, uh, the summertime kind of thing to do for the arty kids. Some guys who were quite smart, who were intellectuals. Some of them actually were jocks. A couple of them played football and stuff like that. But she became kind of their mascot. They were all older than she was, but she was fascinated by them because they were into stuff that she wanted to know more about. You know, they were into Kerouac. They were into existentialism. Yeah. They liked to drive around and listen to the radio. And the original counterculture, the beats. Yeah, they uh, were like, like that. beat yeah. Nick, you know, beat Nick wannabes kind of. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so she In started. Port Arthur, Texas. Yeah. So and she was so sharp. And they didn't even know she could sing because, you know what, Janice just kind of took it for granted that she had this pretty soprano voice because she just, you know, whatever. She was wanting to be an artist. That's how she thought she could become special. And her goals at that point were to become, you know, a painter, took paint art lessons. She was quite talented as an artist. She was very inspired by Modigliani. But while hanging out with these guys, that's when she ends up discovering Odetta, for example, and Lead Belly. And that's when she started working with her own voice and trying to sing in a different way by literally mimicking these records. And they're like, whoa. And before long, she's sneaking across the river to go to Louisiana with these guys and hang out at these roadhouses where as long as you can belly up to the bar, they'd sell you a drink, no matter how old you are. Right. If you're underage, it didn't matter and getting to hear what we call swamp pop, some of this cool R&B, uh, swampy rock and roll stuff. And she just became a total obsessive about music and eventually would end up putting aside her paintbrushes and pastels and put everything Thankfully. into her music. Because of this, she started getting a bad reputation. It was, uh. again, this was a very traditional conservative town 
the other strike against her was, as um, you probably know, it was segregated then. Her school was all white. Of course. Um, African-Americans lived in this, you know, yeah. bad, you know, I mean, I saw it. I mean, it was still to this day, you know, dirt roads rather than paved streets, substandard housing, substandard, you know, school where they all had to go separately. And this was right around the time of Brown versus the Board of Education, which Texas was able to put off desegregation for a very long time after that ruling went down. Janice, however, stood up in social studies class and said, hey, I think, you know, black kids and white kids should all go to school together. Yeah. This is crazy. And that, oh, again, that, that made her persona non grata. Yeah. 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 They did not like that. She started being called all kinds of epithets and you know, uh, very racist things. And she loved black music. Now, fortunately, nearby Beaumont had a cool R&B station. So she started discovering some great music. Ivory Joe Hunter was from Beaumont. I mean, she had some stuff at her fingertips that she had to cross the color barrier to access. And again, a lot of the jocks didn't like that. And, you know, Jimmy Johnson himself wrote in his memoir and gave an interview to Sports Illustrated where he talked about basically he just kind of um, laughed about how much fun it was to basically bully Janice Joplin, that he and the jock buddies would call her names. And they had this nickname for her Beat Weeds. You can kind of figure out where they kind of got that idea from. But uh, they tried to make her life miserable. And poor Janice, with her last name being Joplin and his being Johnson, I think they sat next to each other in history class. So, <laughs> right, so that's right. where she got she got it. Oh, oh. And, and yeah, it's it it seems to be uh, it really affected her in a negative way. Uh, and uh, maybe Jimmy Johnson and some of her other tormentors uh, ought to rethink uh, their values and, and what they were doing back then. Um, but conversely, you expose her family as being really loving and even a bit musical themselves. So yeah. tell us about her parents and, and upbringing in Port Arthur in, you know, in her family life. It was very unusual because, yes, her mother had been a great singer herself as a teenager, uh, her senior year I in Amarillo, Texas. Right. Yeah. And so she literally taught little Janice, who was basically an only child until she was six, how to sing and even to play on the piano when she was very young, like two, three years old. She started exposing her to music. And um, but her mom you wanted a good life for Janice. She wanted that post-World War II, prosperous, yeah, middle-class, yeah. white picket fence life for her daughter because mm-hmm. she herself had a very unsettled childhood. Yeah, growing up in the Depression and things like that, I'm yes. sure. Yes, well, uh, even affected, pre-Depression, yeah, but yeah. yes, very much. And then Janice's father, she called an, uh, a secret intellectual. He also was from Amarillo, Texas, had moved to Port Arthur to get a job in the booming oil industry during the Great Depression, got a kind of a mid-level management job. He had studied engineering in college, but had never completed college. He never got his degree, but was a very smart man. And he would come home from working all day and read history and philosophy. He listened to classical music like Bach. He also was an atheist, which was very unusual at the time. Yes. And if you were, you didn't really make it known no. so he did kind of keep it on He'd the be down called low. A commie after that yeah now janice's mother came a very, from a very religious family evangelical christian family janice herself was baptized by immersion um in this first christian church there in fact 
years later, they found in a church closet a paint-by-numbers Jesus at Gethsemane oh, painting really? that Janice did. It's actually on exhibit in the very cool uh, Museum of the Gulf Coast in Port Arthur, Texas. You can actually see that on exhibit. So she had these two very different ideas coming at her. But what they both had in common, her parents, were they really loved her and they really taught her to kind of speak her mind, to think outside the box, even though I don't think they had any idea that they were kind of creating what, what, a monster. What they were setting up, right. Yeah, right, right. but they happily gave her, you know, art lessons. She was a real tomboy as a young girl. And the dad, I think, wanted a son. So since he didn't have one, he got one when Janice was 10 years old and her brother Michael was born. But at that time, he was building all these outdoor, you know, uh, things that she could do, swing sets that were kind of dangerous. And she was really into climbing trees. She fell out of one and broke her arm. And and she was a pretty rough and tumble kind of kid. The dad would take her with him to the barber shop on Saturday. He would take her to the library. Um, she loved books, loved reading. In fact, she said, you know, in my family, as soon as you could sign your name, you would go get a library card. Oh, okay. He also used to take, I think this is kind of a cool thing to do. I mean, there was nothing to do, I guess, that much. She, he would take Janice and her friend down to the post office to look at the wanted posters on the wall. <laughs> and so, of course, later Janice famously loved the Hell's Angels. So I'm wondering if that kind of planted the seed of, <laughs> you know, the bad guys, you know, yeah. like in the outlaws uh, or whatever. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, um, you know, there's, <laughs> there is uh, some advantages to uh, at least being or looking like the bad guy. Right. Exactly. Uh, sort, sort of thing. All right. Now, uh, as we talked about uh, her love of black music, it seems like her friends, there were a couple of friends in high school that introduced her to, at the time, what is called race music. Yeah. Um, and that's where her passion for the blues comes Yeah, about. a couple of guys that she hung out with that were older. You know, turned her on first to Lead Belly, then Odetta. And then when she briefly went to college, you know, she graduated high school when she was 17. Yeah, 1960. Yeah, mm -hmm. and went to this nearby school, Lamar Tech, it was called at the time, in Beaumont. And most of the kids that went there, a lot of that were from Port Arthur, they were going to be in the petroleum industry. Janice, of course, wanted to be an art student. Mm -hmm. But while she was there, she actually discovered Bessie Smith. And through, a, I think he was an English professor who had some Bessie Smith records. Again, these are 78s. Bessie Smith, uh, dead at this point and pretty much forgotten, even though she had been hugely popular, you know, Empress of the Blues in the 20s, but the uh, Great Depression kind of wiped out her career. And so Janice really became obsessed with Bessie Smith, and that kind of took her on a journey, too, to find other blues recordings and learn these songs that were quite obscure. And this time, and, you know, we're talking early 60s, you know, there were some guys, uh, white guys up in New England, and out in California that were becoming blues scholars and going on these quests to find these old blues 78s. But you will rarely hear of any women on this kind of mission to discover these records. And right. that's what Janice did. So by the time, you know, she had quite a few misadventures. I think I mentioned she was briefly out living in uh, California and Los Angeles with an aunt. Then she went to try to be a beatnik and living in Venice Beach for a while. Then she hitchhiked to San Francisco for the first time all by herself when she was 18. She ends up back in Texas again, and eventually in 62, she goes to school in Austin, Texas, where she really found a tribe for her, you know, kind of interest, music, the beats. 
and she joined her first band called the Waller Creek Boys. Yeah, uh, interesting name for uh, a band that's one third female. Yeah, well, they, they have already been playing some, you know, kind of Woody Guthrie folk and yeah, yeah. some bluegrass. It was um, Powell St. John. You might recognize his name later. He wrote songs for 13th Floor Elevators, mm -hmm. and then he also was in Mother Earth with Tracy Nelson. And he played harmonica and a guy named Lanny Wiggins who played guitar and banjo and sang. So they heard Janice's voice and were just blown away. So they asked her to join, become one of the boys. And they were shocked because she had this deep, deep knowledge of blues and R&B songs that she had learned. And so she started teaching them all that kind of stuff. So they were doing lots of roots music. I guess you could even call it Americana, what we refer to as Americana yeah, mm -hmm. today, on campus, and then broke through and got all these fans at this really cool place called Threadgills, which still exists in Austin. It had originally been a gas station started by this dude, Kenneth Threadgill, who loved Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman, you know, the yeah, father of Jimmy country Rogers, music. That's right. Yep. So they started performing there and built this fan base. So for the first time, Janice realized, hey, I want to be a musician. I don't want to just sing to my friends in the backseat of a car or sing along with the radio. I, I like this feeling. I want to on the biggest stage as possible. Yeah. Right. She loved that feeling of people <laughs> digging her voice and getting into her music. It's so quite the drug, yes. That totally set her on uh -huh. her path to become the Janis Joplin we all know and worship. Um, okay, so before we get to, you know, uh, San Francisco in the later 60s, 66 on, I just want to ask, there there seems to be like two basic formative experiences for the American rockers. Um, there's the reinventors of themselves. Uh, you know, people like Bob Dylan or Lou Reed, for example, who are, you know, standard middle class kids that then, you know, change their whole uh, persona, their whole existence to become the people that we know them of now and then there's the born this way types and i think janice fits more like on on that side of things no, she, i would say definitely a little bit of both i mean speaking of dylan he was a huge influence on her she discovered him um when his first record came out and was really pretty obsessed with him and she read Sing Out magazine, the little um, small magazine for folk music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's weird. I f actually found an interview with him from around that period of like 60, I think it was 62, something like that, 63, where, for example, someone interviewed him and said, you know, talk about your songwriting. He's like, oh, I don't write songs. I just make them up. I just pull them out of the air, kind of yeah, downplaying yeah, yeah. that. And then lo and behold, I find an interview with Janice from a couple of years after that same kind of thing. Like, oh, I don't write songs. <laughs> I just make them up, you know. And yeah. she she loved Dylan. And in fact, cool thing that happened was in 1963, she left Austin and hitchhiked with Chet Helms, who will yeah. play a huge part in her career in 66. Mm -hmm. But at this point, he had dropped out of UT, was traveling around, also a big Kerouac fan. They go to San Francisco because Chet was convinced she would really make it on the folk circuit doing her Bessie Smith style blues. Right. So that was her first attempt to become a professional musician. So that's why San Francisco, why, yes. uh, the first time, yes. or the time she actually comes to live Yeah, there. she right. first moved there in 63 and, you know, didn't have anything, no infrastructure, no place to live, yeah. no money. Yeah. But interestingly, she did make it to the Monterey Folk Festival where Bob Dylan performed. And at this point, he 
was still not very well known at all. And in fact, the show wasn't really getting that much traction until Joan Baez came out and said, hey, you guys, listen to this guy. He's got something to say and did with God on our side, you know, with him. But anyway, Janice already was smitten with him and hanging out on the fairgrounds, actually bumped into him and um, her friend Jay Whitaker, this woman who she was her lover at the time, who went with her to the, the festival, told me this great story that Janice goes up to Dylan and says, hi, I'm Janice Joplin. I'm going to be famous one day. And he said, yeah, we're all going to be famous one day. <laughs> uh, well, she won the golden ticket, uh, so she wasn't uh, BSing him. Uh, yeah, well, they that. both ended up being on the same label, Columbia. That's they both right. ended Albert up being Grossman, uh, managed by Albert Grossman. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. hey, <laughs> I think she was telepathic. <laughs> now, I I've had the pleasure of speaking to Yorma Kalkinen several times, and we once talked about his working with Janice. Oh. I love um, his stories about yeah. Janice. Oh, uh, yeah. And he's probably heard the typewriter tapes. That Well, yes, I have. And that's uh. the point. So uh, there are these early recordings of them. And to Yorma, he says, look, they were just working out songs. That's why my wife was typing in the background. Uh, they're poor quality. And uh, it's really just for sketching. But it's still gives us a glimpse of what's to come, right? Oh, yes. And, I mean, it's just such a great window, too, into where... Yorma and Janice's heads were at at that time. I mean, they were such kindred spirits talking about blues and, you know, these different songs and just to hear their camaraderie while they were working out these songs. And then, but even you could see into the future, there's this one little bit you can hear when they're talking and she starts talking about wanting to have a gold lame dress and, you know, to wear on stage in front of this velvet curtain. Now, this was yeah, a like the Supremes or something yeah. like that. Right, and this yeah. is a time when Janice was a total beat neck and the way she looked on stage she would either wear some man's shirt like this huge oversized like button on the front men's shirt no bra um, which was scandalous in those days of course we're talking 63 <laughs> right you know dungarees um or levi's you know worn out a lot of times barefooted or if she dressed up, it would be like, say, a black turtleneck and Levi's or something like that. Oh, the standard beatnik dress. Yeah, totally. Her mm -hmm. hair just hanging down. Um, you know, really no Janice that we know of as being this amazing, you know, feather boa, well, incredible. Well, she's, she's still kind of playing acoustic music at this point, Yeah, right? she had learned how to play auto harp in yeah. Austin with yeah, the Waller Creek Boys. She was mm -hmm. teaching herself guitar. She learned a little bit from, you might know the name, Tom Hobson, who was a renowned guitarist in the Bay Area. She took some lessons from him and managed to put enough tips for, you know, open mic night tips together to buy an acoustic at a pawn shop. So she's trying to get better on guitar but you know to hear her with Yorma you know she was only at that point she was I think 22 years old or something like the way let's see 40 no she was 20 she was 20 years old yeah this was 63 and to hear her ideas for the future and just to hear them working together and I so enjoyed talking to Yorma about Janice and of course you know in 66 they would cross paths again when he was in Jefferson Airplane and right. and she was with Big Brother but I think that time when they worked together and her voice then was his favorite of all the Janices that we've gotten to hear yeah. you know so things don't go well on her 
first trip here, uh, her first living experience here, and she's forced back home after acquiring a severe drug habit. Yeah, yeah, it started out pretty good. I mean, because again, like Chet Helms said, she knocked their socks off. You yeah. know, things went quite well in the beginning. She really impressed all kinds of people with her voice and got bookings all over the Bay Area and even apparently some label interest. But it was a very, very difficult life. I mean, think about it. This was 63. She was a lone woman, no infrastructure. She was booking her own gigs, either hitchhiking or eventually getting a little moped to get around and no place to live, you know, living hand to mouth. And it was tough. It was scary. And yeah, she had started drinking and she started popping pills. Mostly uh, amphetamines. Yeah, right? purple hearts, they were called. Now, these were quite available back in those days. College kids had them. She first tried them in college to study for exams and things like that. So um, horribly, things uh, deteriorated. She ended up actually leaving San Francisco, spending the summer of 64 in New York City, where she mostly made money by being a pool shark. She was an amazing pool player. Really? <laughs> so she was able to hustle up a lot of pool <laughs> games. That's how she made money. But um, around that period, she was introduced to methamphetamine, which she began injecting. Ugh. And it was very prevalent, both the Lower East Side and mm -hmm. the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. In that period, a lot of people, I mean, the famous Owsley, he was first... Um, as the chemist Bear. the chemist of yep. methamphetamine yep. before he perfected LSD. So it was quite available. Sadly, she got so into it that singing fell by the wayside and she was down to 88 pounds, close to death. And her friends put her on a Greyhound bus. Sent her and, home. Yeah, May of yeah. 65, she went back to Texas. So what do you think is the most important takeaway from her first, you know, largely unsuccessful trip out West? Well, I wouldn't even count it as largely unsuccessful okay, in that because I think it was a very important first step for her to make it as a musician uh -huh. and she actually met some people like Yorma yeah, like yeah. Jerry Garcia yeah. mm -hmm. even her future bandmate Peter Alman who formed Big Brother and the Holding Company in 65 he was on that same folk circuit he was on a live radio show in Berkeley with Janice and first saw her sing up close and personal. She was on folk bills with Nick Gravenitis, um, the great Chicago songwriter, uh, blues singer, who later would play an important role in her life. And of course, Chad Helms, who yeah. would be very instrumental in her return in 66. So mm -hmm. I think she was laying some groundwork that she wasn't perhaps physically, emotionally ready to do on her own at that point. And you know what? I ended up interviewing some other women who tried to make it as folk singers and rarely did any of them be able to pursue it because it was such a difficult life. Oh, it was, especially for women. Yeah, it was dangerous. Yeah, there was no money. There was you know, it was hard. It was really hard. And the rare exceptions were, you know, people like Joan Baez, who, you know, had a label, you know, who was huge, the mm -hmm. queen of folk. And she was doing a very different kind of music than this white girl singing the blues. Right. Yeah. You yeah, know, Janice yeah. was, you know, carving her own path, which was very, very different from the popular oh, folk, the folk singers of the, the day. Oh, the folk community. Yeah, they were doing... Because it was very much a community. You know, people yeah. wanted to sound like Joan Baez. Yeah. And Janice was kind of growling and <laughs> rasping and had this alto and doing songs about low lives and chiselers <laughs> and bad men. You know, Bessie Smith songs. Right. 
So she goes home, sobers up, and attempts to live a, a normal expected life yeah. back in Texas. But it doesn't take, does it? She can't stop the music that's in her. You know, it was just too much a part of her. And she did fear for her life. She knew how close to death she had come and that, because you know. Because of the drugs. Yeah, 88 but, pounds. Yeah, so yeah. That, I mean, yeah. speed is a very, very yeah. deadly drug. And um, she was afraid. And her mother, of course, her parents, you know, clearly wanted to save her life. And they thought that this music thing was really bad for her. So we're trying to steer her away from it. But she couldn't help it. She started writing songs again. She wrote Turtle Blues, which is, you mm -hmm. know, we know from Cheap Thrills. Mm -hmm. Finally, she starts performing again. Um, she'd gotten better on guitar so she could accompany herself and at coffee houses in Beaumont. And also in Houston, where Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark and some others yeah, were mm -hmm. starting to perform. Uh -huh. So she ended up back singing um, at some different concerts and things in Austin, Texas. And again, getting a lot of support from uh, her audiences, some music journalists who could see in her this incredible talent. But, you know, look at the time period. This was now 65, 66. And guess what? The Beatles had hit. Yeah. Now things go electric. Folk music was starting to fall by the wayside yeah. and people were playing in bands. Janice was still doing the folk thing. But guess what? She heard this band called 13th Floor Elevators yep. <laughs> with this guy Psychedelic named Rocky music, right. Erickson who yeah. had this, whoa, yeah. shrieky, piercing, banshee wail. And she's like, hmm. So yet I, yeah, again, she said, I can do that. Right. right. So next thing you know, Chet Helms working with Big Brother and the Holding Company, who've decided that they want to have a girl singer like Jefferson Airplane right. and the Great Society, a couple of bands. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I know just the ticket. So he sends his friend Travis Rivers to come from San Francisco to Austin, where Travis was from, and already knew Janice to retrieve her and take her back to San Francisco to jam with Big Brother and the rest is history. So before we go there, I, I have to ask about the Peter DeBlanc marriage proposal in 1965. Well, I think just as evil and deadly as her speed addiction was and was this guy yeah, that she met yeah. around that same period in 65 in San Francisco who was, I mean, you can make a, a Netflix series about this guy. He was a con man and he conned her into believing he was in love with her and wanted to marry her, that he was from this rich family in upstate New York and that he, you know, he created this whole um, false identity. He had this you know, crazy resume that was all fabricated, et cetera. He was a smart guy. He was a pathological liar. He had a wife and kid. He had other women in his life. But he somehow convinced Janice that she was the one for him and that they were going to get married and she was going to have this white picket fence that her mom had always wanted her to have. So they started this correspondence because she was back in Port Arthur. And, oh, my gosh, getting to read those letters is so, so incredible to just see Janice basically trying to take stock of her life to that point, looking back at things that she had done in her life, decisions she'd made, looking to the future and 
it's just so eye-opening to really understand Janice and try to get into her head. Yeah, yeah. Because she wrote him like something like 70 letters over about a four-month period, and they're they're just amazing documents. They function pretty much like journal entries. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, she finally figures out that the guy's a total cad con man, and he's, I think he hustled money out of the family, but... Um, they break it off, and she then just fully goes back into music again at that point. So, and I, I bring that up because, you know, kind of like the torment of, uh, of high school, these are psychic hits that uh, are really, uh, you know, taking a, a toll in her, uh, who, by all accounts, you know, is a sweet, nice, intelligent woman. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about it. Like, you know, she was popular and, you know, fairly, you know, well-loved in, in her school in Port Arthur, and then they turned against her in Austin, Texas. Got this big following. People thought she was, you know, the greatest thing ever. And then these horrible guys in this fraternity uh, nominated her as the ugliest man, man on campus right. and put her face up on these posters. Now, she did not win. That's been falsely reported. A mm -hmm. uh, linebacker from the football team won. But still, that was so hurtful yeah. to her. Then here we go again. You know, this guy who's like madly in love with her and... I mean, it's just heartbreaking to read her letters to him, like, you know, saying things like, oh, Peter, you're the first guy to ever write me a love letter. And, you know, she had some insecurities about her looks. I mean, I personally think she was gorgeous, but, you know, she wasn't like a cheerleader beauty queen type, which was kind of the, you know, the bouffant hairdo and the makeup and all that. No, like she in, was her own woman. Yeah. And she in exuded in the her 50s, own sexuality, 60s, yeah. uh, which was not expected yeah. uh, of the time yeah exactly so she kept you know it's like building you up just to knock you down yeah. it was that kind of painfulness that i think made her really um mistrust love interests and relationships that and she was in yeah self-medicating um and again she was shy it took a long time for the waller creek boys to actually get her to perform live and she had to guzzle down a few beers or some you know a, liquid some courage, jug wine right? or whatever yeah, yeah. to get it going and the same kind of thing yeah. with uh big brother she overcame that you would never in a million years guess that she had any sort of stage fright or fear because of she was such a phenomenal dynamic performer but you know she did so in 1966 she heads back to san francisco at the urging of chet helm and joins as a singer for a band he also manages big brother and the holding company so did it did it take an electric group to make her an electric singer oh yeah she um again wrote letters and talked about the transformative effect on her of singing in front of really loud guitars where she couldn't even hear herself. I mean, you know, hey, there were no monitors then. No, there was barely no, even no. any PAs, yeah, you yeah. know? Sound reinforcement was not invented at that point. And no. again, that's why I say that if she hadn't been on this musical journey going all the way back to her late teens as a singer, you know, she had great pitch. You listen to some of those San Francisco bands and most of the vocals were, whoa. <laughs> Rather raggedy. Yes. And yeah. she could freaking hit the notes, you yeah. know. She didn't have and to just... hear herself. She... Yeah, inner, she knew she, she knew hear her the, the inner placement. voice right yeah she yeah. knew placement in her vocal uh, exactly chords. but um, she got a whole new toolkit yeah as far as a vocalist goes i mean you know again as i mentioned before she has already experimented with different styles of singing etc mm -hmm. but now she was 
adding some a little Rocky Erickson banshee whale to her gospel testifying to kind of going back to rock and roll little Richard stuff. She loved little Richard as a teenager. You know, you can hear a lot of influences coming in that she hadn't expressed before in her singing in order to be heard over this loud two guitar attack bass and drums. And in the beginning, she wasn't even the lead singer. She was just singing maybe three songs, four right, songs. Right, right. It was a very democratic band. And with this communal idea, Peter Albin, the bassist, sang most of the lead, but Sam Andrews sang some, James Gurley, the guitar, other guitarist, sang some. They all brought material to the group to work up. And so it was just a very gradual evolution that she even started singing on most of the songs after they became huge at Monterey Pop. But before that, she was doing a lot of backup vocals. And even that was an interesting new thing for her. She had, of course, done some harmony vocals with uh, some of the folk groups and uh, doing her blues stuff uh, with her accompaniments. But now she was using her voice in different ways to sing and make almost like sound effects. She was learning how to play these cool percussive instruments. So again, she was expanding her musical repertoire. Okay, so now she's in the burgeoning San Francisco music scene um, that she will rule over in about a year or so. So how much of her success is is based on that timing. Oh, number one, I think this was the happiest period of Janis Joplin's life wow. from that, you know, catching on early, you know, before it was she was a nationally known name. Oh, yeah, this is pre-Summer yeah, of Love. This and, was, and this all was of like that, the real so, yeah. Summer of Love. Yeah, like 66 is actually the Before the, the real media summer. found out about it, the <laughs> yes, real Summer yeah. of Love was definitely like late 65 into 66, yes, six, yeah, you know. Yeah. And it was by, by it was, summer of '67. It's uh, it was it's, over. It's way over, yeah. and it's actually a, a health hazard. To yeah, be exactly. Eight. But this period, there were all these great little small, you know, gatherings yeah. and free concerts mm-hmm. outside. Yeah. And she was part of this whole community. And even though she had found her tribe of like-minded people, it was still such a crazy eclectic group of people that were, you know, they were all hanging out together. From you know, people from the Beats to the Hell's Angels. I mean, yeah. Big Brother was like their mascot band to people like the zen buddhists to you know of course all the psychedelic bands and then of course people who had started bands like grateful dead that she'd known for that period when she'd been there before on the folk scene and they all just really supported each other it was such a new thing it was so exciting and also just all the different parts of it, like the way people were dressing and finding crazy, you know, vintage stuff in thrift shops and using um, bits of clothing from other countries, you know, from around the world and creating this whole look and making beads and, you know, creating this persona, which is what she gradually was doing under the influence of all these new friends of hers and building a following of just people that just hung on her every word, you know, ran up to the lip of the stage to hear her sing. And that kind of confidence boosting and then that kind of community and camaraderie, I think, really permitted her to blossom as a singer and to continue to challenge herself as a musician. It made it more difficult for her to eventually 
leave the band because she wanted to pursue other kinds of music. She wanted to sing different ways that she couldn't do if she stayed with Big Brother and the Holding Company. So that made it yet again another torturous kind of turn in the road where people that loved her so much in San Francisco would then completely turn on her Yeah, in well, 1968, 69 yeah. when she left Big Brother. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But I have to bring up another huge influence uh, to her that I think just makes a, a total difference in her as a performer, and that is Otis Redding. He was the number one for her that um, up until the end of her life, she always cited Otis Redding as being her major influence, her favorite singer. Mm -hmm. And of course, she had discovered those records, which were not well known outside the R&B audience um, as early as, you know, 65, 66. She started hearing his music and loving it. But when she saw him in the fall of 60, I think it was December of 66, he yeah. did a three-night stand Here at, at Fillmore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a sponge absorbing his stage presence, his sexuality. He was a very, he had this eroticism, the way he performed. And he just had the audience in the palm of his hand. And she totally took that and kind of made it part of her own presentation on stage. And then also even just some of his vocalization tricks she started picking yep. up, you mm -hmm. know, the way he would kind of do this kind of soulful stuttering of certain syllables and things like that. She started incorporating that kind of sound into her own, which, you know, ironically, then later on, I think Robert Plant kind of took some of her vocalization styles that she had adapted from, you know, Otis Redding for his own style. You know, I, it, it keeps going on, you know? Yeah, you know, you, that's the second time that Plant's come up here. And, and I, I completely... Uh, uh, agree with you what she uh, has vocally is, especially in the early rock and roll uh, piece here is that her frequency level is able to sit on top of those twin guitars there with Big Brother just as like Robert Plant will do with Jimmy Page. She has that whale. He has that whale that can cut through uh, the the frequencies that sit with the six string electric guitar. Yeah, right? and we'll later see it with Steven Tyler and Aerosmith. Yeah, we'll yeah. see it with yeah. you know even David Johansson of uh, who was in the New York Dolls in the seventies. Always points back to Janice as a big influence. You mm -hmm. know to be able to sing over uh, that you know Johnny Thunders, Sylvain uh, <laughs> yeah, Sylvain. Yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. Of course, her, her worldwide coming out party occurs uh, in 1967 when she's one of the performers at the all-important Monterey Pop Festival. So what happened to make her an overnight sensation? Well, they weren't really that well known outside of the Bay Area, Big Brother and the Holding Company. And Janice certainly had no separate billing. She was just one of the guys, right? right? So uh, the promoters of the festival wanted to be sure and have the cool San Francisco sound represented at their festival. And mm -hmm. famously, these guys, you know, Lou Adler and John Phillips were from the L.A. scene. So there was an early Saturday afternoon slot for this unknown band, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Well, that all changed <laughs> when Janis Joplin opened her mouth and people were literally, as the British like to say, gobsmacked. Right, right. Um, they could not believe the sound coming out of her. And it worked so well with her band, with Big Brother and the Holding Company. I mean, it was such a great unit, the way they worked together. But the focal point 
became Janice after that. Now, funnily enough, they were not filmed right, as many time. of the bands right. were because <laughs> the San Francisco acts did yeah. not trust these L.A. slickies and they refused to sign off the paperwork giving permission to be filmed. D.A. Pennebaker, the late, great documentary yeah, filmmaker who we just mm -hmm. lost, mm -hmm. you know, had done Don't Look Back with Dylan, which, of course, Janice had yep. seen. Mm -hmm. All these heavy hitters were there. Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, who was working with Michael Bloomfield and Paul Butterfield, who were performing. Pennebaker went nuts. We've got to have this girl in our film. If, if you got to break somebody's arm to get her in it, we got to do it. So this whole thing went down where there was a big fight among uh, their uh, former Mary Prankster manager, Julius Carpin, who demanded that they not be filmed because, <laughs> you know, they were being ripped off to Janice, who wanted to be famous, wanted to make it. So it was this huge fight. Eventually, Janice won and the producers gave them another time slot the next day, Sunday right. evening, mm -hmm. which was a much more prominent spot, to play another set. This time it was filmed. So at this point, all these journalists from all over the country, from the UK, who had been brought in to Jimmy write Hendrix about the show. And, yeah. Uh, the Who and all that were yeah. coming up. Mm -hmm. I mean, Janice was the headlines in a lot of the coverage because yeah. Yeah. she was such a shock. There'd been no hype or anything like that. And people just were blown away. So this event led to their eventually signing with Albert Grossman as their manager. And he eventually was able to get them out of their first record deal with a small label called Mainstream that hadn't really done much for them, but had locked them up into a five-year contract. And Clive Davis, who had just recently become the president of uh, Columbia Records, was there. That's right. Totally, you know, among those who was just blown away by Janice. And of course, he ended up coming up with a ton of money to break the deal with Mainstream and sign them to Columbia, which would happen in 1968. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. this kind of took a few months to come to pass. But by then, you know, Janice's star had risen. She was becoming the feature of lots of media coverage. And she was really being singled out. And her band was kind of treated more like backup players rather than her bandmates. Well, um, in analyzing uh, that ourselves, uh, there's a huge difference in talent uh, between Janice and the, the other players of Big Brother. She kind of outgrows them very quickly. Yeah, I mean, they were great at what they did. And, and personally, being a punk rocker myself, I love their kind of, I mean, they had this real pre-punk kind of garage band yeah. energy. They call themselves freak rock, you know. So I have to say, I really yeah, love... Cheap Thrills, I think the cover is uh, actually uh, put together by the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, right? Well, it was, it was done by Robert Crumb. Yeah, R. Robert Crumb. Crumb. R. Yeah. Crumb, right. So, who was a friend of Janice's, and she's the one that got him to do it. But Again, Janice was a restless soul when it came to her music. She wouldn't stay in one place for too long. She had to move on. She had to do other kinds of music that, yes, Big Brother, it was not in their wheelhouse to do. Mm -hmm. Well, what became her fate only a few short years later, was that best for her? You know, leaving Big Brother uh, and and moving on. I mean, she had this community. She was the singular superstar in it. She knew and had people that she could trust. And now she's going to move on. And she doesn't have that support structure anymore. Yeah, it was it was hard for her at first. Also, it was a real learning process to become a band leader. 
And that wasn't something that you could just do overnight no, either. No. So she really didn't have time. It was unfortunate with, she had some great players, but it was unfortunate with the, what was later known as the Cosmic Blues Band that they couldn't really organically gel as a group before they were already out on the road performing. And um, I, but I don't think that band has gotten the credit due to them because there was some incredible things that they did together. And you can, again, see Janice's evolution as a band leader and also branching out and doing different styles of music on I Got Them All Cosmic Blues Again, Mama, which I think is a really underrated record. I think it's got some amazing stuff on there. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of my favorite Janice songs ever is Cosmic Blues, which, of course, is on that record, yeah. which came out 50 years ago. And it still sounds really good. I think people need to go back and listen to that one. But... By the time she had moved on from that group and got together with the guys who became the Full Tilt Boogie Band, right. I think she got back some of that camaraderie, communal vibe that she had from Big Brother, but also, you know, some of the uh, chops, some of the musicianship that she was looking for to um, be able to accompany her musical visions. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree that each iteration, the, the musicianship gets better. But at the same time, she's kind of sacrificing this, you know, this camaraderie that she had. It's good to hear that she got some of that back with Full Tilt Boogie. She was a brave person. She was fearless, even though it was really hard and really scary. She basically did that her whole life. I mean, if you just look back and see the way that she would take these turns on the road that would alienate her former safe, stable life, but she had to. I mean, it, part of it, maybe it was reading Kerouac. Part of it was her family instilling her this way of thinking that you have to follow what you think is right. You have to make something of yourself. You have to continue to work towards something, to work toward goals. You know, whatever it was that drove her, it made for a very disruptive personal life it made it very hard to have you know be in a relationship etc but she made those decisions um and she bravely forged on even though it was very painful mm. so now you also dive into the obvious rampant sexism of the music industry of the age and how it affected janice in particular right Yes, she, of course, um, broke down a lot of barriers. Yeah. It didn't mean that they didn't keep trying to put them up for her. And again, people, I think younger people today don't realize how rare it was to have a woman like Janis Joplin with the kind of music that she was doing, putting herself out there like she did, like bearing her soul and doing it in a very kind of physical way, um, very sexual and also she was very very outspoken about her ideas she was behind the scenes doing things like i just met david smith of uh, the hate ashbury free clinic and he was telling me about that she helped actually very early on starting some support systems for women who had had um, been sexually assaulted who got pregnant accidentally mm. things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. some women health issues that made women have, you know, it was very risky time for women. And Janice had to deal with some of that same stuff herself. With the music business, the same kind of thing. She wasn't your typical little frothy, you know, pop star type. 
and it took a lot to now she could hang with the boys oh yeah no problem oh yeah so so she had to put up with a lot of that and i that's why i do think she would have continued on and become a producer because at this period of time hardly any women got to produce their own records or anybody else's records right 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 in fact i think it was all men uh at that point yeah so you know she has this lifelong pursuit for a partner uh, and an intense desire for a living relationship that just never really materializes for her, right? Yeah, there's this really telling conversation that was recorded by the great journalist David Dalton on that Festival Express train tour of yeah, the summer yeah, of Canada. 70. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. And Janice is discussing their lives with Bonnie Bramlett, who was on the road with her husband, then husband. Um, and Janice... Says yeah, to Bonnie her, and Delaney, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Janice says to her something like, you know, music is the only thing that's real. It's the only thing that lasts. I mean, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. Like, you kind of have to give it all up because no man is ever going to do for me what music does for me. And again, I, I think that's true that the music was so much a part of her that it was the only real thing in her life that never let her down. You know, people betrayed her constantly. People turned against her constantly. But the music never did. And she wanted to be a musician, and she had to sacrifice her own personal happiness for that pursuit. Yeah, a life filled with lovers, but nobody of, you know, complete significance uh, that she would call, you know, a real relationship, and it a real wasn't, partner. Yeah, and she she did not reject those ideals. I mean, she... No, not at all. She, she, told, she desired them. Yeah, yeah, she told the guys in Full Tilt Boogie when they were recording Pearl, they would go to Barney's Beanery and hang out yeah. and knock back a few, and she would talk about wanting to get married, wanting to have a kid, and she would make these attempts to get married and settle down and things like that, but things just didn't work out that way no it just it seems like her life is just one long blues record but the thing is though what we have to remember is she was only 27 years old right when she passed how many people out there have settled down especially these days well Uh, not today yeah Yeah. but maybe you know it was an expectation yeah back then yeah uh, so she was yeah but she was pioneering new roles and lifestyles for women Mm -hmm. hey you know Mm -hmm. so what she was doing then perhaps was going to be part of a maturation process and evolution. Maybe when she was in her mid to late 30s, she would have settled down. Maybe she would have had a kid. Look at Yoko Ono, you know? So there were a few women that were seeing things differently then. And, you know, Joni Mitchell comes to mind. That they knew that they could not follow their muse as artists, as musicians, and be in this relationship at that very vital period of their artistic evolution and that's where Janice still was she was just beginning her musical evolution she still had a long way to go so I like to hope that eventually had she lived she would have eventually found some sort of stable relationship that she could have had happiness with and still been an artist, still been a musician. And I think it would have taken a special kind of person, male or female. She was, yeah, poly- she was fluid, right? Yeah, she was mm-hmm. fluid, polyamorous. and But I think she liked having that 
close relationship. And she had some very good friends that she stayed in touch with for long periods of time that she wrote letters to, etc. So it wasn't like she was one of those people that just couldn't connect with others because she certainly could. It just seems like, you know, her life is just filled with a lot of hope and promise, but in the end, so much disappointment, as her father said, the Saturday night swindle. Right, which was her version of what she turned it into cosmic blues. Yeah. That same kind of existential dark philosophy that, hey, you know, when you do realize, like, life is not just a bowl of cherries, you know, Things can be going really great for you, and then all of a sudden the rug is pulled out from under, or, you know, a disappointment, a loss. I mean, life has a lot of slings and arrows, as Shakespeare liked to say. But, you know, the thing is, you get used to that when you hit your 30s and your 40s, and the older you get, you learn to your, deal your, your with those kind of things. Your skin gets thicker, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. She never got the chance to get to that part because horribly tragically she accidentally overdosed on this very strong heroin that happened to come her way when she relapsed after being clean for several months yeah in the end she only has these few short years and she dies at 27 uh, uh, as we said from an accidental overdose at the landmark hotel on october 5th 1970 while she's completing her next album pearl right which uh, had she lived, would have made her on top of almost all the rock acts in the world. Yeah, it was actually October 4th that she died, but um, it was at 1 o'clock in the morning. So she actually, you know, they found her that night. It was a yeah. Sunday night. Yeah. But Janice would have continued doing, I think, all kinds of music. I think she would have had more successes it was uh, me and Bobby McGee that gave her, I think it was like the second time in pop history there was a posthumous number one. Yeah, Otis Redding was the first. Yeah, Dock of the Bay, which yeah. how poetic is that? <laughs> it is. And of course, she was devastated when Otis Redding died mm -hmm. in, in a plane crash mm -hmm. when he was a very young man. I think he was 29, I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hey, there's a lot of casualties in rock and roll. Buddy Holly, one of the first. It's a dangerous profession. Richie Valens, only 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. It is dangerous. And Janice knew what she was getting into. She yeah. knew how dangerous it was. But you know what? She did it anyway. Didn't matter. The passion was uh, what drove her. So so why do you think her music is so endearing? We're, we're talking about a woman who died almost 50 years ago now. And... Who do you think you find as her musical children today? I think there are a lot of her musical children. Everyone from, say, you know, Brittany Howard to Alicia Keys have mm -hmm. actually talked mm -hmm. about her influence. Uh, Alicia Keys talked about how she was able to express this inner emotion that it's so hard to take yourself to that place and do that. It's a scary thing to do. Uh, Stevie Nicks, when she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Last year, yeah. Yeah, earlier in this year, she talked about seeing Janice, getting to open for her in San Francisco, seeing the connection she was able to make with her audience completely changed her life and made her want to do that too. Then there's other artists, uh, Kate Pearson of the B-52s, same kind of thing, to have that incredible performance style to 
you know, be able to use your voice in all these different unusual kind of ways. I think the list just goes on and on and on. Um, Florence Welch, uh, Florence and the Machine, she's been able to reach women of all genres, all different eras that once they hear this music, I think it gives them a boost to think, I can do this. I want to carve out my own style. I want to carve out my own sound. I want to do this no matter what, what it takes, what the costs are. I've got to do this. I think that's one of the things. Now, as far as Janice's music, her great legacy, hey, it still sounds amazing today. And I teach college and I love seeing my students' faces when they see the performance on YouTube of, of Big Brother and the Holding Company doing Ball and Chain and mm, Monterey Pop, you yeah. know. That kind of authentic music expression, that kind of talent, that kind of passion is still a rarity to this day. I mean, there's there's never been an artist performer like Janis Joplin, and there's been a lot of good ones, but no one just like her. I, I think uh, she broke the mold. So lastly, let's pull the lens back a little bit more. And why do you believe we all still care about Janis and, and, and the other giants of this musical age? Well, I think because the music holds up, it stands the test of time, to use a cliche. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of music that's fun, great music that you go back and listen to it, and it really has its place in that period of time, etc. But it, it doesn't have that timeless quality. And I think, again, because Janice herself went back. She went back to music from the 20s in the 30s to inform her own style. So she's part of this musical spectrum, I think, that makes it have the substance and this depth and this quality that makes it still really reach us emotionally. And that's the thing about music. You know, there's probably nothing else that affects us the way music does. It touches our emotions so strongly that, you know, we can hear a song maybe 30 years later and suddenly it takes us back to this feeling, that moment where that song was part of our life. And I, I think Janice's way of expressing her own music does that as well. The language of the universe. So what's next up in the rock and world for you? Well, I am hoping to possibly do a beautiful photo book of Janis Joplin because I discovered in researching this book, there's amazing photography out there. A lot of the images have never been seen, but photographers loved her. Mm -hmm. Everyone from Richard Avedon to Irving Penn to, of course, all the great rock photographers, Jim Marshall, Jim Marshall Baron right, Wallman, yeah. and yeah. on and on and on. There's a lot of great stuff that's never been seen. And again, I, I think there's still such an interest in her. But just her visual presentation was a huge influence, even on our style today, etc. Been a huge influence on women. I'm also working on a documentary film about Nudie, the rodeo tailor. Oh, yeah. Most known for everything from Graham Elvis. Parsons uh, yeah. jackets. And, yeah, 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 he yeah. he did the Gilded Palace of Sin yeah. cover uh costumes on the yeah, cover yeah, yeah. yeah also was known for doing elvis's gold lame suit mm -hmm. back in the day he did all the the great hank williams suit with the musical notes on it and actually even made outfits for janis joplin wow so it is you're still on the janis joplin train here 
Oh yeah. Oh good. Once good. Uh, once I uh, have someone in my life as my biography subject, and this is number three, they they never go away. Oh oh good good good. Well, we look forward to seeing more of this. So, Holly George Warren, thanks so much for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. Well, I love talking to somebody who's into this stuff as much as I am. <laughs> oh, they, thank you, thank you. We will have you back. I'm sure. I'd like to do a song, Yay. a great well, song. I'll so count on that. It goes like this. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord. Won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery. Wow. Wow. Thank you for coming by the studio and spending the day with us, Holly George Warren. We had a lot of fun. Um, her new book, Janice. Uh, her life in music is out and available now. Obviously, it would make a great holiday present for any of you rockers out there. Uh, so go get it wherever you find your good reads. All right. Between 1967 and 1970, Janis Joplin was a rising star. And then at 27, she was gone. She made only three albums in her life, uh, two with uh, Big Brother and one with the Cosmic Blues Band. Of course, she was working on what would become Pearl at the time of her death. Um, there was only one single, Piece of My Heart, that charted into the top 40 uh, during her lifetime. And uh, only the Chris Christopherson penned Me and Bobby McGee made the top 40, reaching number one after she was gone. That's not a lot of material to hang your hat on. Uh, granted, she was a dynamic and fearless performer. That was obviously her real strength. She took the Otis Redding act and yeah, kind of like what Aretha did with the song Respect, Janice turned that male sexuality uh, exuded from the stage and turned it on its head. And we know that persona that she created was about as opposite as she was offstage. Uh, this does make her compelling. But... I, I might ask, does she really deserve all these accolades, uh, all of the books and movies, uh, a stage show uh, and, and documentaries? I mean, Aretha uh, has a giant career with far more musical impact than Joplin ever achieved. And while we can't predict what Janice uh, would have become uh, had she not ended up gone on October 4th, 1970... Uh, I'm not sure she would have been able to navigate the waters of rock stardom in the 1970s regardless. Maybe, but her personal demons would, I think, always be there to help uh, destroy her ambitions. I bring this up because I've had, personally, a complicated relationship with her since I was a baby rocker all those years ago. At first, I found her voice shrill and too raw when I heard it. But then, seeing her dynamo performances on video made me reassess. Uh, she was certainly magnetic on stage. 
Uh, now, I've read several of uh, the books uh, on her and, and seen uh, the Little Girl Blue documentary. And now I've read uh, Holly George Warren's book. And I guess because everyone is still trying to figure something out, it, it, I guess that's what makes her so compelling. Uh, and I, I, I get the Lord Byron treatment of the artist uh, with so much promise taken from us before proving they were worth their early accolades. I, this is all really just a big thought experiment, and, and maybe I'm just having it with myself. But I can't help feeling that Janis Joplin, while worthy of inclusion into the overall pantheon of rock and roll, isn't and shouldn't be sitting at the right hand of, say, Chuck Berry and Elvis. Uh, and I, I wonder if all this brain power going into Janice uh, over the years isn't better served shining lights in other directions. Now, maybe it is the unfortunate reality that Janice was unique because she was the lone woman and lone white woman, I mean, that achieved the same level of respect as the men of her time. Um, she shouldn't have been, I, I, I think uh, is part of my point. And if there were a few others around her at the time, she would be less of a unicorn. Of course, maybe that is the appeal, um, especially for women rockers. There just wasn't a lot to choose from in the early days of rock and roll. So she is the one. Uh, and yes, she did knock open a few doors and we shall see other women rockers push through it as we move along in our story into the uh, 70s and 80s and beyond. It's complicated. Well, at least it's complicated for me. I guess that's why there are so many versions of her in the public mind and uh, a desire to be handed more. All right, that's enough from me. Uh, as always, tell me what you think. Uh, contact us at uh, Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook, at Pantheon Pods for Twitter, and R&R Archaeology on Instagram. Of course, there is the website at Pantheon Podcasts, or just call us at 650-822-7625. Who knows, you might even get me to call you back. All right, next week, famed rock and roll photographer Bob Gruen is in the house. He has a new book out, strictly called Green Day Photographs by Bob Gruen. Uh, guess what band it's on? <laughs> yeah, as he tells me, it's the only band left that gives Bob full access at their shows so he can capture the magic that spontaneously happens, you know, like in the old days. As many of you might know, today's acts have management uh, that treat photographers as a necessary nuisance allowed in for only like three songs and then shoot out like infected rats. Yeah, we'll get to into that and all kinds of things. So please come back uh, to hear uh, all about Bob Gruen. Until then, especially the ladies this time, keep up the rockin'.
Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.